This is Jay, and the following bonus episode was originally released as a Patreon exclusive back in October 2018. As Potstirer Podcast is now unaffiliated, I will be rolling out all Patreon exclusives publicly over time at a clip of about once a month, either as a replacement for a regular episode on occasion or as an additional episode in a month. This episode includes a more in-depth discussion of socialism and what it could mean for the United States if we incorporated a little more socialism into our government. Due to Bernie Sanders' early gains in the 2020 Democratic primaries, this episode is a helpful supplement to understanding a little more about socialism. Enjoy! This month's Patreon bonus episode is an installment of Editorial by Jay. Editorial by Jay is a feature where I give commentary on a specific topic in a less formal way. This term tends to get brought up a lot in political discussions, but few people agree on what it actually means. So these debates often become circular and people tend to burrow back into their echo chambers. It was once a largely taboo topic where your position on it could get you blacklisted, but not so much in the past 25 or 30 years. It has come up a lot in recent years with the debates over universal health care and the Affordable Care Act compromise, the 2016 presidential run of U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders, and the well-publicized candidacy of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for Congress. I'm talking about socialism. What is socialism? And what would implementing it in some form mean for this country? I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. I've been thinking about this topic for months as a bonus episode, especially due to the healthcare issue and more generally the inequalities that exist in the U.S., largely along the lines of race and class. See, the U.S. is such a polarized society, but for being so polarized, political ideology largely skews to the right. What is considered right-wing ideology here in the U.S. is considered extreme right elsewhere, and in the past 30 or 40 years has drifted even further in that direction. The left in America is, in other parts of the Western world, center-right, maybe center at best. The Clintonite third way pushed the Democratic Party rightward from center to center-right. This is why the first thing that comes out of my mouth when people say the Democratic Party is full of leftists is that there is no left in America. Now, that's not to say there aren't Americans that hold left-wing views. There definitely are. But true left-wing ideologies, and by that I mean socialism and communism of various types, generally don't gain a lot of traction here in the U.S. And a lot of that is because in this country, socialism has an image problem. Historically, socialism has often been associated with the communism of the Soviet Union and its satellites and the Cold War. I'll get into the Cold War in a moment. But before we do that, we need to be sure to define our terms. That's really a big deal because part of the problem with talking about political ideologies such as socialism is that we have this image, this idea of what it looks like in a popular consciousness. But that image might not be so accurate and it might not be so concrete. So I want to kind of take some time to define a few terms. 
Capitalism is an economic system where the means of production are privately owned and not owned by the government. Characteristics of capitalist societies include privatization of all industries, including public goods and resources, lack of economic regulations, and the primary focus on people as commodities and the end goal of maximizing profit. The U.S. is a capitalist country, though many other countries are either capitalist or include some elements of capitalism. Socialism is an economic system where the means of production, as well as property and natural resources, are owned by the public. Socialism is essentially the opposite of capitalism, and characteristics of socialism include public ownership of industry and resources, heavy regulation, the rights of workers, and the end goal of collective benefit. Socialists tend to disagree regarding to what degree property and businesses should be publicly owned. But even if owned privately, socialist countries tend to employ more stringent government regulations than capitalist countries. Many European and Asian countries practice socialism to varying degrees. Communism is a subset of socialism that is intended to replace private property and private ownership of the means of production with public ownership. The modern meaning of communism generally denotes government ownership of the means of production. The best-known form of communism is Marxist communism. Philosopher Karl Marx wrote about communism as a successor of capitalism. According to Marx, capitalism is not sustainable due to the gross inequalities between the bourgeoisie, the wealthy who own the means of production in a capitalist society, factories, industries, businesses, and the proletariat, the workers, including both farmers and wage workers who are the majority in a capitalist society. In capitalism, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, or TRFP, has been an accepted hypothesis by not only Marx, but also pro-capitalist political economists such as Adam Smith. The idea being that over time, capitalism will enter a period where there will be a decrease in profit, though economists and philosophers disagree on the cause. But in any case, because of TRFP, capitalism, in Marx's view, leads to lower standards of living for society's majority as social benefits and employee wages are cut to compensate for falling profits. Eventually, this leads to a revolution of the proletariat class, which through that revolution, communism will emerge. Part of the reason why communism and socialism are often conflated is because in the late 1800s, when philosophers like Marx were talking about communism, the terms communist and socialist were used interchangeably. And the bare bones definitions are pretty similar. As a matter of fact, the several types of communism, including Marxism, are subsets of socialism. Now, the U.S. had, even before the Cold War, an uneasy relationship with socialism. The rise of unions was a huge part of this. This was around the turn of the 20th century, and socialists were stigmatized prior to the Cold War because of the fights they had against the wealthy elite to gain rights for wage workers during this time. I keep mentioning the Cold War, so to give you a little background here, the Cold War is a name used to describe the extremely strained relationship intense competition between the U.S. and the Soviet Union as the two major superpowers between the end of World War II, really around 1947 and 1991. The reason this period was called the Cold War 
is because the two countries never waged war directly with each other, but they did engage in an arms race, which meant they hoarded as many weapons as possible, including nuclear weapons, which was based on the principle of mutually assured destruction. The idea was that since both countries were armed to the teeth, if one of them were to directly attack the other, that attack and the resulting counterattack would lead to the two countries wiping each other off the face of the earth with a lot of collateral damage. So essentially, the US and the Soviet Union armed themselves as a deterrent. To compensate for this reticence to fight each other directly, the two superpowers engaged in proxy wars, which were armed conflicts involving other countries around the globe, where the US and the Soviet Union would choose opposing sides and support their chosen side with arms and money. Many of the wars, military conflicts, and civil unrest in many countries around the globe during this period have ties to the Cold War and US and or Soviet involvement, such as the Korean and Vietnam conflicts, the Afghanistan War, the Iran-Iraq War, South African apartheid, civil wars in Angola and a number of other African countries, civil wars in El Salvador, Honduras, and other countries in Central and South America, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and so much more. The effects of these conflicts have lasted long after the Soviet Union fell, which was in 1991. Much of what led to Islamic extremist movements such as Al-Qaeda and later ISIS can be traced back to the Cold War. The Cold War was huge and has had far-reaching implications worldwide, which has altered the trajectory of a lot of countries around the world. The role the Cold War has had in modern history cannot be overstated. The Cold War itself can be its own series of episodes, so I don't want to get into it too much here, but I mention it in this discussion because this matters in the context of the relationship between the U.S. and socialism. With the rise of the Soviet Union, its satellite countries, and other countries such as China who adopted their version of communism, communism has been pitted not simply against capitalism, but against democracy. The reason is, these communist countries were largely run by authoritarian regimes. For example, in the Soviet Union, while the economic system was communist, the system of governance was authoritarian, and under Stalin in particular, the Soviet Union could be classified as a totalitarian regime. While the policies the government executed, such as the collectivization of farms during Stalin's regime, were communist, the way the policies were carried out executing farmers who didn't want to relinquish their land to the state, were in accordance with the totalitarian regime. So the way we tend to conceptualize communism today is to marry the socialist aspects with the authoritarian aspects of the countries that implemented it. Now, here's the complicated part, as if everything I've mentioned here already isn't complicated. Authoritarianism is not unique to communism, as there have been capitalist authoritarian dictators such as Augusto Pinochet of Chile, that the U.S. engaged in covert military operations to install in the 1970s. Even today, Russia and Turkey would fall under the category of capitalist authoritarian regimes. At the same time, the economies of European Union countries include varied levels of socialism, yet are considered democracies. Economic systems, as well as political systems, are generally not either-or propositions, and exist on a continuum or scale. And most countries, including the U.S., is a mix of the two. Social Security, Medicaid, and the VA 
as well as public infrastructure, such as most of our roads, are publicly owned. Even certain private industries are subject to government regulation, such as airlines, at least as far as safety is concerned, and public utilities. And while private business is, in general, not regulated much in the U.S., they are still often subject to rules governing employment practices and consumer safety. So there are small touches of socialism in American government, though most of us tend not to think of it in those terms. And it's more useful to think of socialism, as well as capitalism, as a continuum, rather than an either-or, one-or-the-other polarity. So why is socialism so stigmatized in the U.S.? Again, the Cold War. During that time, communism and socialism were largely thought of in the same way, because originally they were pretty much the same thing. And during the second half of the 20th century, communism was often talked about by American politicians and the media as the opposite of democracy rather than the opposite of capitalism. Communism, or really at this point, this hybrid between economic socialism and political authoritarianism, was used as this boogeyman, this weapon by political elites to silence their enemies, from the efforts of the House Un-American Activities Committee, or HUAC, as well as U.S. Senator Joseph McCarthy in the U.S. Senate, to root out suspected communists in various areas of public life back in the 1950s, from Hollywood to unions, to the FBI's COINTELPRO, which from the 1950s until the 1970s sought to discredit and destroy political organizations and individuals they viewed as subversive, including the original Black Panthers and Martin Luther King, among many, many others. The threat of communism was used abundantly as a tool to maintain the status quo. The Cold War gave the powerful elites in the United States a way to tie their already existing conflict with socialism with this common enemy, which was the Soviet Union specifically, and communism conceptually. It was easy then to associate the authoritarian aspects of our Cold War enemies with communism and, by extension, socialism. And therefore, socialism for many years was considered un-American, even anti-American. But this is why knowing what these concepts mean and where they come from matters. And so I would argue that it's time to reconsider the idea of socialism in the United States, at least to some degree, along the lines of some of the European social democracies. Socialism, not as opposed to democracy, but as opposed to unchecked capitalism. But Jay, doesn't socialism mean income redistribution? If I work hard for my money, why should it go to someone who isn't working for it? I did the right things. Why can't other people? As someone who has most definitely paid my share of taxes over the years, I get this train of thought, but I don't think it's helpful to look at it in those terms. Let's talk a little bit about entitlement. When it comes to entitlement, we shouldn't be quick to think nothing could happen to us, even if we do all the right things. Right after I finished grad school in mid-2012, I was looking at the prospect of my teaching appointment ending, which was at the end of summer. Chuckles had recently lost his job. Neither of us qualified for unemployment. We were both frantically applying to lots of jobs, but not getting past the interviews. Our parents weren't loaded financially, so we were kind of on our own if we couldn't support ourselves. It was really rough. At one point, I remember reading up on Ohio's public assistance program to see if we qualified once my job ended. And from what I was reading, we didn't qualify because we didn't have children. And it crossed my mind for just a second. 
that it felt like we were being punished for being responsible, doing the right things like getting an education and not having kids when we weren't financially stable. But after slapping myself because of how incredibly judgy that thought was, I also thought to myself that it sort of made sense. It's hard enough when you're broke, and even harder if you're broke and you have kids. What eventually ended up happening was that I was hired on at my current job a week after my teaching appointment ended, and Chuckles later found employment too. But that experience showed that you can do everything right, and life still happens. There but for the grace of God go I. There are plenty of people in this world, not only poor, but also rich, who get things they don't work for. They even get things from taxpayers they don't work for. But I think we need to consider this a little differently. Extreme income inequality has been a staple in American society for decades, likely even centuries, but in recent years has increased even more. Since the 2008 recession, income inequality has gone up, with the growth in income for the wealthy, especially the top 1%, growing significantly faster than for middle class and poor Americans. By gender and race, the divide in income and wealth is even greater, even when controlling for education levels. So in other words, even if women and people of color obtain higher levels of education, it doesn't close the gap. And in the United States, which on the socialism-capitalism continuum is as close to capitalism as we can get without complete anarchy or a totally failed state, these inequalities are not just a matter of whether you can afford a Kia versus a Benz, or if you can afford a new boat or 4K TV or even the newest Jordans. It's the difference between being able to afford your insurance deductible or not, if you can afford cancer treatments or not, if you can afford to live in a safe neighborhood with decent schools or not, if you can afford the means to improve your situation or not. Many people find themselves tied to jobs that don't allow them to reach their true potential because they need their jobs to live. They need their jobs so they don't get kicked out of their homes, so they don't get foreclosed on, so they can pay off their student loans, and so they can have access to quality health care. Despite the good the Affordable Care Act did in expanding access to health care, health care is still cheapest and easiest to obtain for most Americans when obtained through an employer. Essentially, many Americans find themselves in wage slavery. And I don't want to use the term slavery lightly because of how loaded that term can be and the history and legacy of it in terms of the lives that have been affected and continue to be affected by actual slavery. But I use the term wage slavery in the sense that Americans need their jobs to live and support the lives of their families against the backdrop of worker protections declining and the weakening of unions. Most jobs these days are non-union and employment in the U.S. is typically at will, meaning that employment can be terminated by either the employer or employee for pretty much any reason. But with so much for employees to lose, at will is often more beneficial to businesses than workers. Workers are often stuck and subjected to wage stagnation over time with little recourse. Considering socialism in some form would put some of that agency back into the hands of workers. The idea of the U.S. turning to socialism, or really in particular becoming a social democracy, is about two things, the value of human life and investment in its country's people. Providing people with the basic necessities to live in an advanced society, food, clothing, safe shelter, basic utilities, including internet, health care, education, 
it gives a country's people a baseline standard of living. It's tied to a consistent ethic of life. Life is important from birth to death. Even if we want to talk about pre-birth, taking care of these felt needs is likely to reduce abortions, since financial instability is a major reason why women seek abortion. Adequate food, shelter, utilities can reduce stress, which contributes to illnesses and early death. Access to proper health care means universal access to preventive care and access to life-saving treatment when illness and disease do strike. It also means we can actually address the mental health of Americans in a comprehensive way and help to reduce suicides and homicides, including the epidemic of mass shootings. If mental health is why we are having this epidemic of mass shootings, as many conservatives contend, why not actually do something about it besides use it as a shield to ignore other potential solutions such as gun control or addressing the radicalization of young people towards white supremacy? Providing this baseline standard of living will also allow Americans to contribute their best selves to our society. It's not simply free money. It's investment in our own people. Of course, not everyone is going to be industrious, but life is worth preserving. And on top of that, most people want to feel fulfilled. They want to feel like they're contributing. They want to feel like they're doing something. We can still have an entrepreneurial spirit here in the U.S. and be a social democracy. It actually would be better in terms of individual productivity and social mobility, not worse, because with basic needs met, it would give more people not just the well-to-do incentive to take risks and try new things, take chances, and in so doing, make great innovations that will propel us forward. A baseline standard of living is also better in the long run for entrepreneurs. There are many theories as to why rate of profit inevitably declines in capitalism, but I would speculate that as you pay workers less for a day's work in order to increase profits, they have less money to buy things. They have to cut back one way or the other, either in the short run or if they run up a lot of debt in the long run. With fewer people being able to afford things, the market shrinks, and if you're a business, you have to put more items on sale or feature loss leaders, and then less money is coming in. At the same time, inflation means the cost of doing business is going up, so I can see how such a model is not particularly sustainable without some intervention. But if businesses and individual taxpayers were willing to invest a little bit more on the front end in taxes, we would benefit so much on the back end. Now, I do think most of the how do we pay for this question is really an allocation issue. We can divert money from supporting endless wars and arming a police state to actual investment in the American people. But it would be naive to think that such an endeavor wouldn't require some increase in taxes. That said, the investment on the front end would allow for more dollars in consumers' pockets, and they can spend money on more products and services. This would be very beneficial in the long run. A universal standard of living can be achieved in the form of a universal basic income, a more comprehensive public welfare program, or simply more money in organized resources brought to existing safety nets with expanded eligibility. I kind of lean more towards one and two, but we can debate on the details. The point is, though, if we invest in our people, we will have a healthier, more engaged, robust populace with greater incentive to make contributions based on what we all can do best and what gives us life. And as a nation, the United States would be better for it.
Thank you very much for listening to this bonus episode of Potstar Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give it five stars and leave a review on your favorite podcatcher. Check out potstirrerpodcast.com for new episodes, merch, and more. And I want to hear from you. I'm on Instagram at potstirrerpodcast. We have a Facebook group as well, so definitely join that. And I love tweeting, so follow me at potstirrercast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.